I want, actually really want to discover hospitality and go to the levels that I've not reached in global food. And I want to deliver the mystery of what makes the very best, the very best. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Today, our guest's contribution to British food and the next generation of cookery talent has made him one of the most respected and acclaimed chefs and restaurateurs in Britain, if not the world. Marcus Waring is the chef and owner of Marcus at the Berkeley in London. Marcus, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to get you on the show. We're very excited to hear all of your stories and um, the amazing things you've been doing uh, in London. Um, how are things over there at the moment? They're good. Um, London is, 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 is vibrant, but it also, like anywhere in the world, it has its issues. Of course, we've got the uh, sort of crisis of interest rates and the people spending and, of course, the backdrop or the, the fallout of you know, the COVID is still something that I think a lot of countries around the world and especially here, you know, are still sort of working from really. So, but there are still people going out and eating and hotels are very busy, which is always a good sign. The, like everyone on the planet was affected by COVID and the hospitality sector across the planet was, was very much, as you're aware, um, damaged by that. But what sort of positives have you taken out of the last couple of years? Have you changed things as a result of that? Yeah, I think if you, I think COVID is uh, the period of time was always a reflection on, on, you know, a period where we were all very much not sure of where we were going. Uh, and I, I did feel um, like, a, like a lot of people that it, it was time to reflect. And I think on a lot of reflection, it was the best way to be able to move forward. So I think moving forward in a different way was always uh, going to be what came out of COVID. Uh, personally, uh, looking at my industry, it's been okay, hospitality in general. Wow. I mean, completely taken a, a knock like you wouldn't believe. And I think you, you, you don't come out of it the same as when you went into it because people have changed their work-life balance and the way they think and the way they want to work. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. I think only time will tell. You, um, you let go of a restaurant that you'd had for a decade, you know, in the last sort of couple of years during that period of time. Um, was that hard to let go of? Yeah, I think, I think on, on that, there was always a plan for me. Um, I'm a big believer in, I, I, I always feel that it was a 10 year contract. It was a 10 year uh, uh, sort of set. And I, and I always knew that, you know, a bit of advice I was given early on was to have a plan and stick to it. Um, and it just happened to be that my 10 years came to a sort of an end in, in, in just towards the end of COVID. There was an opportunity to continue, um, but I actually didn't want to. Um, I wanted to reflect uh, on, on what had just happened in the last 30 odd years that I've been working in the industry. And I thought, well, one less restaurant is one less headache. There was no obligation to continue, um, but I do, I do want to do other things. And so by having that t taken out of the equation, it then gives me the option to sort of rethink of how I want to move forward because there's so much more I want to do in the industry more than just running restaurants, if I'm honest. Yeah, I, I want to sort of talk about what you're doing there at Marcus and all the things that you do outside of that as well, and particularly training the next generation too. But t take us back to when you were young. Um, where did you grow up and what sort of role did food play for you as a kid? 
Well, I grew up in the northwest in Southport, just uh, just above Liverpool in a seaside town, um, close to Blackpool, close to Liverpool, Preston area, and so not a not the most vibrant part of the world, and not one of the most sort of luxurious parts of the world. Um, it was a working class place, um, and. It was very simple, very basic. Uh, food was very much, well, was not at the forefront. Farming was very clear. It was very much on the horizon apart from the seaside itself. But as you, as you looked inland, there was there was a huge amount of farming going on. And uh, my father being, you know, in the business he was in, which was basically fruit and potatoes and buying from local farmers and the markets and and selling it on. So I had a I had a uh, introduction to food, basic food from a very, very early age, from the age of nine, 10, 11, when I used to go and hang out in my father's warehouse, uh, which is quite a big place. Um, and uh, I used to go out into, as a delivery boy with the workmen and deliver into kitchens and hotels. So I used, I, I started seeing what kitchens and hospitality was all about from the age of 10, 11. Uh, and, and I was meeting some very interesting characters uh, in hospitality by just being a delivery boy. And I loved it. I loved the workmen that I used to go in the hotels with and the restaurants uh, on the, in the wagons, uh, big, big wagons I used to get into. And, and, and I used to just lump a load of spuds and carrots and onions and everything around, bananas, um, but thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but it was also... I think, and what, what what I didn't really know at the time was that my father was installing a work ethic into me, my brother and my two sisters, um, which was basically work hard. And I think that stood the test of time. And that's very much what I'd say to any young person. If you're going to do anything in life, be prepared to work hard. Do you have any um, dishes or feasts that you remember from when you were young, from the family that um, you look back on fondly that you can share with us? I think the most, the, 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 the dishes... So a couple of things really. There was a, a traditional English roast dinner that was pretty much served every single lunch uh, in the evening. Um, I can't remember not having one on a Sunday. Uh, um, and my mum's baking. She was a great baker uh, and she very much used to bake once a week, put it in the freezer, cook it, very much share, share that. So those two things for me, because my father would bring home a load of fruit and produce that uh, needed using and then she'd just do a mass bake um, and that, that would be that done. That would be sort of uh, her, her sort of work for the week done in the, in the baking department. So those two things I remember as clear as day. I love a roast dinner. Who doesn't? Yeah, absolutely. You, you were given a glimpse into the hospitality world through your dad with those sort of deliveries that you mentioned. But when did you first sort of think about a career as a chef? Then... Very much then. Um, I was, what was I, about 13. I think it was about, about 13 or 14. Um, I got a part-time job in a kitchen um, because on a Saturday night, my father was doing bookkeeping. Uh, and on a Saturday night, I'd go and work into, into the restaurant or a hotel, actually. And my brother was a chef. Um, and so when I was <clears throat> finishing school midweek, we'd used to finish school about 3 o'clock, 3.30, and by about 4.30, I was in the warehouse doing a part-time job for a good few hours. Uh, and then at weekends, <clears throat> on a Friday night, I'd head down to the warehouse um, and spend pretty much all of Friday night. I used to stay at my nan's, who, my nana's house that was just next to the warehouse. And then very early morning, Saturday, I was working all day. And then Saturday night, I was working in restaurants. So I knew from 13, 14 what I was going to do. Wow. Yeah. wow. I get that reaction from a lot of people. Um, and I think the reaction is 
when you know what you're going to be in life at such an early age, you then realise what a privilege and what an absolute, how lucky I was to find what I love and I've loved ever since. Um, and I didn't realise that at the time. It was just a very, very simple life that I lived with my family and, and it wasn't really much to distract a young person. Um, weirdly, there was only three, four channels on the television um, there was no mobile phones, obviously. There was no Google. There was no internet. Uh, and and it's just feel, when you talk like that, it sounds like a completely different. Well, it was a different century. Um, but it feels like it was hundreds of years ago, and it wasn't. It was only thirty odd years ago, uh, 30, 40 years ago. And that that sort of time has just gone like a flash. Uh, and I can't quite believe that I'm talking about an era that just feels like it was yesterday. It was quite, for me, it's quite extraordinary because I can remember it like it literally was yesterday because that period of time was the sliding doors of my life uh, and how I got to the next stage, which was at the age of 17, uh, just nearly turning 18, leaving Southport and, and heading off to London. Um, and I suppose that was the game changer for, for everything, really. What was it like for you having grown up in that environment and moving to London? Was it a bit of a shock for you? Yeah, it was. It was. It's. It's. It's something I wanted to do from an early age. I didn't know where I wanted to go. There were some fabulous hotels around the country. There was always either go to Glen Eagles, go to the Turnberry, go to a country house hotel, or head off to London. Uh, and I was writing to all of the hotels that I could think of that I knew of that I'd done a little bit of research on. Of course, there was nothing to Google, so you you sort of inspired by the odd cookery tv show the, the the odd cookery show that was on television um and the 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 talking to my college lecturers at southport college about where to go and work and they all had their ideas and um, but it was all really down to one gentleman his name was jack neighbor and he was a judge in a cooking competition i was in at my catering college and he he knew anton edelman at the savoy and at the end of this competition, he pulled me to one side and he said, I really love the way you've worked uh, and the, the speed of which you worked, but also the organization. And that comes down to my father. That comes down to my father because I applied my father's work ethic into my cookery at Catering College, which meant I was quick, I was fast, I was clean, I was tidy, I threw nothing away and I respected everything around me. And that's something that a young person doesn't normally have. Uh, because you pretty much just go with the flow. Uh, and I think that's what's, uh, probably why I stood out a little bit more from the people who were my age, exactly the same age as me. And he opened the door to London through the Savoy Hotel. Uh, and that's where I went. Scary as hell that was. That was a very scary moment for me. Um, leaving Southport, my, my, we were very much a family hometown. No one really left home. In fact, none of my cousins, no one I knew left home. They all stayed in Southport. Um, I pretty much was the only one, uh, and off I went, and it was it was horrible. If I'm honest, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there's a lot of um, talk about the the kitchens in in that era and how tough they were compared to yeah. the the kitchen environment now. Do you, do you have any stories of sort of what you gained though from those sort of hard kitchens? You know, what what, what skills and um, what did you take from those times? It could only really relate it to being in the army, if I'm honest. Um, when I worked at the Savoy, I went from a, a catering college in Southport and a, and, a, and, a, and a very small hotel on Lord Street with, with characters that you laughed and joked with and, and, and so on to a place of 100 and 
nine chefs, I think it was, um, delivering food at the highest level. And what in, in that infrastructure was a huge amount of discipline. And there's a huge amount of what I saw for the first time. There was hierarchy. There was a major chef de cuisine. There was head chefs. There was senior sous chefs, sous chefs, junior sous chefs, chef de parties, senior chef de parties, combi chefs, chef de, uh, demi chef de parties, apprentices, butchers, fishmongers, baker, pastry chef. There was a whole army and a hierarchy of discipline. And of course, in that environment, you, you, you work, you're walking into a world of, of structure. At the highest level, the Savoy, one of the leading hotels in the world, delivering food into fine dining restaurants, into private rooms, into bedrooms, into banqueting up to a thousand covers, and delivering all different aspects, whether it be a wedding, royalty, Princess Diana, Prince Charles, the Queen, and everybody down to the to mum and dads that used to come in and have their afternoon teas. So it was very much a different world. Discipline it was the key. Shouting that, yeah, raised voices. There always was, but there was definitely an element of respect that is very much missed. I think um, in the world of kitchens today, it's a very different place today. You're um, you're a mentor to so many uh, now, which we'll get into a little bit later. But for you, sort of building your career, who were the really important sort of people and venues uh, as you started to sort of create your own path? The people will only ever be the, the every single head chef that I ever worked for, reason being that they're the people I choose to work with. Um, and I'm a big believer on that you only work with the people that you think can add value to you. And every single aspect of a job was always about filling in an area that I needed to be trained in, whether that was fishmongery, butchery, pastry, bakery. I would go to certain kitchens that I felt that I, I that could offer me. I don't know why I thought like that, but I, be, I also... I believe that to be a chef de cuisine, you needed to be an all-round cook. So I, I always managed to get a job that was way above my pay grade because I had a work ethic that was a little bit different to a lot of people. Uh, and I had a get-up-and-go attitude and take whatever was put in front of me. And I think that's quite a rare trait to have, and I have that, and I've had it since the day I left Southport, and I still have it today. Um, and so I always landed a job of responsibility, even though I wasn't responsible for the people that I was looking after um, because I was too young or slightly inexperienced. But for somehow I seemed to just get through it. But the inspiration starts with my father. There's no two ways about that. He will always be my basic ground and he'll always be the concrete, uh, the foundation and the cement that sits between the bricks that I built everything on. And because I'll always go back to his basic values, and I think those basic values are very important for the world of today. Yeah, I think we look on our phones for inspiration from people that we know nothing about or know nothing of. Yet our TikToks and our Instagrams and our social media seems to be more important to the modern person today than the people closest to you. And I always believe a wise man and an older person will always have added value, or can always add value into you. And these are traits that I think are missing in, in some parts of society today. You've been involved in so many amazing restaurants. Um, take us back to the time when you sort of uh, when you got your first Michelin star um, as a head chef. What was that like? I never opened L'Orangere at the age of twenty-five to win a Michelin star. I was invited back from Paris by Gordon Ramsay to open this restaurant, a sister restaurant to his other restaurant, the Aubergine. And um, it, it was it was a, a, a job at the age of twenty-five that 
was daunting. Um, I had, didn't really have a great deal of man management skills under my belt because I'd not really got enough experience. I got enough experience of cookery, uh, but not quite enough of how to deal with running a kitchen on my own with no infrastructure to it. Um, and I found, I, I, I found that very tough. And I opened that restaurant, I think, around the March of 1995. I was 25. Uh, and I was coming up to my 26th birthday, I think it was. Yeah, 26th birthday in June of that year. And in January of the following year, Michelin awarded Gordon his second star for the aubergine and me my first star. And I have to say, when Gordon called me to tell me that I'd won it, first of all, I was absolutely gobsmacked. Um, and he asked me why. And I said, well, it's not something I was cooking towards. Uh, and it didn't, have, it didn't actually cross my mind. I, I, I was cooking because I wanted to cook. I was running a restaurant because... My mentor had asked me to run a restaurant. I'd win an accolade. Didn't even didn't, didn't think of it. Um, how did it feel? Well, it just felt like someone had put sixty kilos on my back. Uh, and I have to say, it felt that heavy. Um, and then I had a drink that night with him, quite a lot. And then the next day, six o'clock, I was up. Seven o'clock, I was in the kitchen and I was carrying on um, with this bag on my back. And the bag was heavy, and it felt heavy, but I weirdly loved it. Um, and because it was unexpected but I thought you know what if I've got it on my back I'm going to run with it and then with that came the accolades and then came this media awareness and of course being associated with Gordon um, back in those days the, the newspapers and the food critics they, 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 they just came in and they wrote about you and I was very fortunate and I think how I won that accolade was I was down I was trained as a soldier to cook to the highest level not every day, not every other day, every hour, every plate, every lunch, every dinner, every service, every week, every month, every year. And that's how it was. And that's what wins accolades. Continuity and consistency. Did you did you treat your sort of role and your job differently with after getting that Michelin star? Does, does it affect the way you um, create dishes and operate sort of the restaurant? I think it changed me a little bit because it made me more intense. Um, it made me a lot more short-tempered, um, fearful of this this accolade. And I think some chefs in the world live and want to, all they want to do is win these things, um, and then and then your life changes from that point onwards. Um, yeah, I, I I just got on with it, but I got on I got I got on with it as a thousand miles an hour. I never really looked around around the people around me. I just did what I had to do to keep my head above water. But we were so busy, and I was so busy as a chef. The restaurant was packed, and it was a seven day a week operation. Uh, I I had to learn how to deal with that, and that took some getting used to. I have to be honest with you. It took me years and years and years. So I've kept it going uh, and worked incredibly hard to to keep my head above water. And then in time, you know, you catch up, uh, and your mental ability catches up to to your to your cooking ability. And and what I mean by that is your man management skills. And so that's what caught up with me. And eventually, I, I could do my job fluidly rather than struggling every day. You've had a relationship with the Berkeley Hotel for around twenty years now, a couple of decades. Tell us how that sort of came about, and. Um, you know, when, how it all started? Well, it came because when Gordon and I had finished at L'Orangere, which is the very first restaurant I opened, 
we he moved his restaurant. We moved away from the particular business partners, and he moved his restaurant into Royal Hospital Road. And then six months later, um, I opened up the restaurant Petrus in St James's Street, and that was what followed my first restaurant. And I opened that and, and ran that for five years. Um, and then what happened was we decided, or Gordon and we, the company, decided that we wanted to move it to a more... Gordon, in that particular time, had moved into Claridge's uh, and it was incredibly successful. And one of the sister hotels to Claridge's was the Barclay. Uh, and so um, this site came about and it was a case of taking, basically, the, the quite an incredible restaurant like Petrus and, and moving into a five-star deluxe hotel. Um, uh, in, in Knightsbridge in one of the most sought after addresses and that was the power of where Gordon was at that particular time because we not only did we do that I also did the Savoy Grill um, Angela did the Connaughts Gordon did the Claridge's he also opened Boxwood Cafe um, and, it, and it was it was fantastic and we were pretty much dominating the leading hotels in London um, and, and it was quite extraordinary it, It's such a special time um, with the evolution of uh British cuisine, with a sort of lightness that came into it, with um, everything that was happening then. What was it like being part of that sort of movement? It, it, when I when I look back on it, you know, now and, and I talk about it, I look about, I look on it as um, it was actually quite extraordinary what we did, and we 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 did things that you you, you wouldn't normally do today. We took on restaurant sites that were just phenomenal. In their in their names, but yet they were empty as restaurants because they were sitting inside stuffy old five star hotels. But these five star hotels have now, in the last twenty odd years, come to life and refurbishments and the money invested into travel and people, you know, traveling all over the world. A five star hotel is a luxurious place to be. They always have been, but the investments that uh, hoteliers are putting into their into their hotels now is quite extraordinary. So we found ourselves going from the high street into the most iconic addresses in London. Um, and that, that was a reflection, quite, quite unusual. Um, it was almost rock and roll-like in a certain way. Um, our biggest competitors in those days were Sir Terence Conran restaurants. Um, and, you know, the odd, the odd chef here and there, the odd brilliant chef popping up, Jean-Christophe Neville, of course, Marco was about. The, you had the executive chefs of the hotels, but they didn't have names in restaurants. They were just executive chefs of hotels. They were pumping out banquets and room service, and we were pumping out fine, quick, fine dining and winning and winning, you know, quite big awards. You know, in spaces that were just dead zones for many, many, many years. I mean, when I took over the Savoy Grill, one of the most iconic restaurants in London, and if you actually look at who has eaten there over the last X amount of years. Is quite extraordinary, and what the reason why it went flat as time went on is was the, the the lovely men and women that had dined in that restaurant for so many years, they'll start they were passing away, but there was no new generation coming in because Sir Terence Conran was on the high street and making restauranting really cool elsewhere. You know, you look, remember Quaglinos? You go to Quaglinos. The most important thing about going to Quaglinos was nicking an ashtray. There were a collector's item. Um. And so, so we, we, we were very much, uh, you know, doing our own thing, uh, but doing it in the fine dining world, in top class hotels. And I think that's what made us stand out a little bit more than, 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 than everyone around us, really. A few years later, you took on the site, uh, the lease yourself, and um, 
Tell us about that period of time and and the opening of Marcus. That was tough. Um, I felt that I had a point to prove. I think Gordon was very much becoming a global chef. Um, he was very much um, becoming this incredible TV personality. And I always knew that. And I could feel our friendship was getting more distant. And there was more chefs on the horizon. There was more people, sorry, there's more chefs within the group. There's more restaurants. So you started to feel like you were part of this big pack. Um, yet at the beginning, it was just me and him uh, on our own. And I, I, I feel that even though I could feel the relationship going distant, I did. I sort of looked at myself in the mirror and say, probably, you know, it is time for me to do my own thing. And I never thought I'd ever do that. Uh, none of us ever did. But I think it's just the evolution of your own mind and the evolution of your own ambition. And, and, and no, no matter how people looked at me as a chef, I was always in the shadow. Um, even though I'd built a restaurant like Petrus and I ran it for 10 years next to Gordon, it was a phenomenal restaurant. We won two Michelin stars there. Um, yet, yet it was always Petrus by Gordon Ramsay or Gordon Ramsay and Marcus Waring. And I think as time went on, you, you started to realise that you know times had to change. And so the minute you start to put a, a question mark around your being you then end up having falling outs that just naturally happen because you've you've questioned the mothership, so to speak. And and it just happened from there. Um, and it was never about me and Gordon. It was always about Marcus Waring and the company. It was never about him. Um, and I've got the ultimate respect for him as a chef and as an entrepreneur uh, and a father. How did how did it feel when you um, opened the doors as with your own restaurant and your own identity? Was it a different pressure? Uh, I'd had the best training that any chef could have ever had. Not only did I have a training about opening big restaurants, I knew how to run fine dining restaurants. I knew how P&L worked. I knew how the accountants worked. I knew how solicitors worked. I knew how, how general managers and hotel owners worked. So I'd had the best training that any chef could ever have had in one of the, the best groups in London. Um, and so... For as daunting as it was, I put absolutely everything on the line. My house, I had no savings because I used all my savings in a court case. Um, and so I was of cash skint, but I had my own property uh, and I put that on the line. And I thought, well, you know what, if I'm going to put my house on the line, then there's only one thing to do. And that's I have no option but to make it work. And that's what I did. And that's the only fire, the only fuel I needed to put on my own fire was to make sure that I don't lose the house that covers me and my children. Um, and that's what gets you up in the morning, that fear, that fear factor, uh, and that adrenaline. And I have to say to any young chef out there or orator or, or anybody entrepreneur, waking up and working for yourself is one of the most satisfying things you can do. But prior to that, I've worked for lots of people and I couldn't have worked for myself without working for every single person and I wouldn't change anything that I've done because it's the building blocks of what I did the minute I opened that front door of that restaurant. Has the restaurant changed much since sort of those first couple of years to what we see now? Yes. You know, I say to my chefs in the kitchen, even my existing head chef right now, at nine, nine o'clock, 9.30 in the kitchen now in London, um, not all of them, but the majority of them, the last ticket will be coming into the kitchen and that'll be it. By 10.30, chefs are cleaning down and they're on the way home. Back in the days... We, would be, we were open and our last orders were at 11 o'clock at night and you would get the City of London and all the, all the, the, the businessmen coming in late at night, 10.30, a 
And I'd say pretty much every night of the week, we'd have a tasting menu, seven course tasting menu, tickets coming on at 11 o'clock. And those guests weren't leaving till 1, 1 2 o'clock in the morning. We were serving desserts at crazy times. They were smoking cigars, having cognacs, and they were there all night long. And it was unbelievable times. Um, and as the years went by, people started eating earlier and earlier and earlier. And of course, they then stopped smoking in public places. That changed the way in which people were eating because then this social aspect was starting to disappear. Um, and of course, you know, the two biggest curveballs in our history, in my industry, without doubt, number one, I'm going to put down as, as, as uh, Brexit and number two, COVID. Um, <clears throat> we can work our way out of COVID because the whole planet is. And so we can do it collectively. Leaving the European community was one of the stupidest things this country has ever done because we have just closed the door on our biggest family, Europe, who are effectively have been the workforce of hospitality for so, so many years and we've just locked them out. That, for me, was when a knife just went into the back of hospitality and it, will, it won't recover for a long, 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 long time. And it's sad because... I, in the last four years, three years, or whenever we left, COVID, obviously, that changed everything. All our European uh, employees, a lot of them went back to Europe, um, didn't come back. I've, I've employed one European person in the last three years, and it cost me quite a few thousand pounds to get that person over here, and I've got to sponsor that person. That person just used to waltz in at Heathrow Airport, show his passport, and then go and get a job. Now... You think you're trying to, you know, you think you're trying to escape from a prison camp. It's unbelievable. You just can't get them over, and the money to get them over is just it's, sometimes isn't worth it. So, what's the message? Well, the lovely British workforce is going to have the young of the youth of today or the youth of tomorrow. I see opportunity, and I see massive opportunities for a workforce that is young now, that are the noughties, the kids of the noughties. What they have the opportunity to be the new entrepreneurs of our of our industry and to rethink the way in which hospitality works, the hours we work, and make this job more excitable and more interesting than it has been or it's ever been. Otherwise, it won't work. That's been a real sort of key feature of of what you do, um, not just because of the because of what's happened with Brexit, but you've. Um, you had a program forward with Marcus Waring, which was a culinary training program. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that and why it's so important. I love this. Um, so I joined forces with Compass. So I am now a sole trader. Okay, I run one restaurant and I've run multiple restaurants and I've worked in multiple companies. In COVID, uh, I, I basically have a new agent on board and I, I, I talk to my agents, almost like a business partner, as my aspirations in life and what I want to do. And one of the things I want to do is to train. Um, but I don't want to train kids. I've done that all my life in my kitchens. And so the idea was to join Compass, the largest catering company in the world. Um, but their, their, their division of it, of UK, UK and Ireland. Um, and we got around the table to talk about apprenticeships. I actually thought an apprenticeship was a young kid, 16, 17, 18 year olds. An apprenticeship is someone who's training at different levels. And of course, I've never really looked at my industry from a training point of view ever until, well, three years ago. And what it dawned on me was that as I was sat in these meetings and we were about to think, well, what, what, what's my role? Well, you know, you're going to be given awards and you're going, to be, you're going to be doing this and you're going to be doing that and you're going to be going to cooking competitions. And I'm thinking to myself, that's not what I want to do. I'm not a lecturer. 
So I threw this idea on the table. I said, do you know what the biggest problem with kitchens today? It's not the kids. It's not the people who are getting up in the morning, the young people. It's the chef, head chefs and the, and the sous chefs and the executive chefs who are really upset or bitter about their job or really a little bit looking in the mirror thinking, why is life so tough? Why have I had such a tough life? Why am I this? Why am I that? Biggest problem in kitchens is the fact that the chef de cuisines don't look behind them to see who's coming up behind them and looking after the next generation. So I put it to the table. I want to mentor the top 15 chefs, cohort one in Compass. And I want to put a training program together that puts them through their paces and that justifies their jobs and their being in the industry. The key element of this training program is not to make them a better cook. It is to make them a better person, to look in the mirror every morning and feel that they have got a purpose in the job that they chose to work in. No one forces anyone to go out to work in this country. We all have a choice and we're very lucky to have that choice. So don't be bitter with your own choices. Just get the best out of your choice. And that's my role in Compass. And I'm now about to start interviewing next Monday, Cohort 3. And so as time goes on, I've told Compass, be very patient because what we're doing is we're growing brand new view of hospitality and cookery in that in, in the catering company. So that soon there's going to be 45 chefs under my leadership. And behind those 45 chefs are hundreds and hundreds of young people that they are responsible under my program to make sure that they're delivering quality cooks coming through. And it's been a bit of a eureka moment for them as a as a employer because um, there was a message in a meeting where, listen, you've probably heard this and we hear this all the time, we need to go and attract the best chefs. We need to go and find the best chefs out there. And my argument is that there are no better chefs anywhere because there are no chefs. We've said goodbye to Europe. So what, I'm like, what are you talking about? We've got to go find the best chefs. I'll tell you what, why don't we just focus on the chefs we've got so that we can train them to be the elite so that the rest of the world will look, in, look at us and say, I want to go and work over there. And let's not look at what's maybe around the corner. Let's look at what's right up our own bloody driveway right here, right now. And I think that little straight, straight talking has changed the way in which even a company as big as that thinks about its cooks. And it's been brilliant. And I have to say, I absolutely love the challenge of working in something so big as that because it is the opposite of what I'm about. I'm an individual doing my own thing. Now I'm working in one of the largest catering companies in the world. Why am I doing that at 53? Why? Because I want to be better and I want to improve myself and I want to keep pushing myself and I want to give back a little bit as well. Well, that is absolutely extraordinary. And it's not the only area that you mentor either. It's um, You've been on MasterChef The Professionals for almost a decade as well. How, how different is that to sort of reality and, and juggling that sort of side of things as well? That's interesting because, uh, you know, the MasterChef was a, a project that came, fell into my lap um, nine years ago. Um, and I have to say it changed the way in which I speak to chefs. Um, the reason being is that I was a chef that looked under every post-it stamp and you couldn't get nothing past me. I was stood on that hot plate and I was an absolute bastard to work for. Uh, excuse my French. Um, and, and I was. Um, MasterChef took me into a brand new place and I didn't realise at the time that my role was to critique people um, and to give a judgment of what I think is right or wrong of the chef in front of me. But I'm not actually talking to the chef in front of me. I'm actually talking to the viewer at home who can't taste the food. And there was two things I was told. There's no scripts. There's no rules of how you do television. And there's two things I was told by the producer uh, or the lady, <clears throat> Karen, that asked me to come on the show. 
first of all, smile. And secondly, no swearing. The rest is up to you. I thought, is that it? <laughs> she said, that's it. I'll guide you for the, for, for, and if there's anything you're doing wrong. But apart from that, that's all I need you to do. So in my kitchen, all I ever did was swear. Smile? Never. So as I started going year after year, it made me a better speaker to my own chef. And of course, when you're talking to the chefs in your own kitchen, you assume they know everything about cookery. And it makes you realize that they're also training as well. So when I'm talking to the chefs on MasterChef, I'm actually edu- we're actually educating them how the best way to move forward. If you want to win MasterChef, and I'll say this to any chef around the world, listen to the judges and listen to what the critique that the judges are giving you. Because what they're actually giving you is advice of how to improve your cookery and how you need to think about your food. And that's what MasterChef is doing. What, I've, what I really love now, I've just finished filming my ninth series, is that we are responsible for finding the unsung heroes of an industry that without MasterChef, these young chefs would never, ever, ever get noticed because they're lost in the world. And that's fine. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people who are not sure. But every now and again, we get a bit of a break or an idea. Let's go on that show. Let's try this. Let's go to this competition. Let's go and work for that chef. And, you know, every now and again, someone may just go, come across people who really care about them as individuals. And I think that's what MasterChef does. It's a roller coaster ride of a competition. But the eureka moment for the chefs who compete isn't when they're on the studio floor. It isn't when they're cooking. It's when they're sat at home with their loved ones and they see themselves on the big screen and they start to realise what they're like when they're talking and they're cooking and seeing themselves on television is quite a special moment for someone and for chefs who would never get close to a film studio or to a TV studio. And they're sat with their loved ones talking about their passion. And it's, it's quite extraordinary. And I think that's what makes it, that's what makes MasterChef globally so special, I think. The last couple of years have been challenging, but um, London and, and um, Britain's food scene is so vibrant and um, evolving all the time. What, what do you love about what you're seeing and what do you hope to see moving forward from it? I think one of the hardest things about industry and everything at the moment is that we can see what everybody's doing on our phones. And so what I find really scary for the generation behind us is how do you stand out from the crowd these days? What, what makes you different? Everyone's cooking the same food. People are choosing the same crockery. Kitchens are free, pretty much looking the same. London is vibrant. There's no two ways about it. And I think that the middle sector dining is becoming at the forefront again of what people want. Easy eating, cost-friendly, vibrant, full of life, good quality ingredients at a fair price. And I think that's what London is, is very much all about. And then just speckled through London, you've got these really fine, fine dining rooms led by top chefs that just give you that little bit of extra magic within the in the hospitality industry. That if you want to spend that extra money, it's there. But the majority of people just want to go out and have have a great time. You've um, done the most extraordinary things for the culinary landscape of Britain, and continue to um, foster the, and mentor the new talent coming through as well. But what, what do you love about what you do? I think I think it's everything I've done and everything that I'm about to do. Um, it's an industry of hard work and it's an industry of very talented people. Um, I've been in it for 37 years. Um, I've got plans of what I'm going to do for the next five, 10 years. And the next few, the next few years, if I get to do what I want to do, it'll be bigger than something I've ever done before. 
because I want to be I want to I want to discover hospitality but I want to deliver it I want to I want actually really want to discover hospitality and go to the levels that I've not reached in global food and I want to deliver the mystery of what makes the very best the very best and I don't know I never reached the pinnacle of my industry I never got to three stars I was at the sort of halfway base camp of Everest and I could see the peak but I never quite put the flag at the top because I changed my direction I went on to MasterChef I joined television and I really love the world of working with great people in the world of TV making uh, looking at uh, how things are done I love book writing and working with Compass for me is a, is a colossal opportunity so moving forward I will reach the top of a mountain but it won't be the Everest of that. It'll be, I don't know, another mountain, but a mountain that I see as a new challenge and challenging myself in a different area in different ways um, because I don't want to do what I've been doing for the last 37 years. Um, I don't want to be tied to a cooker for the next 10 to 15 years. There's too many other exciting things I want to learn. And I think for me, it's about consistently, con con consistently looking for something to excite my imagination and when I have worked um, in so many different industries, they just inspire me. Um, and so I'm continuously being inspired by people in new worlds. And I think it's because when you're a head chef and you're a restaurant owner, you are the inspiration for the people around you. And as time goes on, you start to look for what's next to keep your fire going. And I need that now because I don't look at food under a microscope like chefs do sometimes. It doesn't, that doesn't interest me. Uh, I made my mark in my industry years and years ago um, and I don't really want to micro analyze cookery um, I want to teach people how to relax and enjoy and I think my TV show tells me kitchen garden I'm just about to film my third series in 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 Europe um, has really helped me understand a part of my life that I never ever took but noticed or I took for granted and that was the supply chain the grower the farmer the supplier Anyone delivered anything to my kitchen years ago that wasn't right, it got thrown back at the driver. Someone got a load of abuse and I wanted it back in my kitchen two hours later the right way, not the wrong way. Never went to see a supplier, never talked to the farmer. And that was yesterday. And I think uh, because of social media, we can see a lot more now. I've now got this chance to complete the circle of my education, which is how things are grown and how hard farming is and how hard growing is. And so I've got a huge amount to learn about that world. And of course, there's one more world that I, I've not ventured into yet that I absolutely adore, and that's wine. Um, so there's a, lot, there's a lot to learn there. A lot for me to get my teeth into for the next 10 years. Well, Marcus, you're an absolute inspiration, and it's an honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a little bit of your story. Um, please keep in touch, and we'll have to catch up again soon. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au and be well.